Good morning and welcome to Faithbrook. My name is Josh Friesen and I'm one of the volunteer hosts here at Faithbrook. Whether you're joining us in person or online, we are so thankful and excited that you've joined us for worship today. Now, if you're newer here, we would love to get to know you. And that's why just a few minutes after the service today, right here in the worship center, we're gonna be offering Discovery. Discovery is a great time to learn a little bit more about the history of Faithbrook and why we do the things we do. You'll also have a chance to meet Pastor Jim and some other staff as well. And if you have any questions about Faithbrook, it's a great time to ask those as well. Well, part of Faithbrook's mission is to lead people into a new and thriving life in Christ. And one way we want to help you thrive is in your financial life. And that's why we're offering a Financial Peace University class starting in January. There is a small cost related to the class and childcare will be provided for those who need it as well. God urges us to be good stewards and this class will let you obtain some financial peace. You can get more information on how to sign up by going to our website under events or the Church Center app. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to staff. Well, in just a second, we're going to welcome our next gen pastor, Eric, as we continue our series, Build a Boat. Well, good morning. Glad to see you all. Glad that you joined us in worship today, whether you're here or in person. It is so good to see all of you. Uh, this is a bit of a new experience for me today. I have been able to preach before. Uh, I've done uh, for a little while, but um, I've never actually been up here and preached two sermons in one day where I would go and I would have something, do it at one service, and then bring it back to the second service later in the same day. And as I told the 9 a.m. service, they were getting the unrefined rough draft, but you all showed up to 10.30, so you get the new and improved version from just about an hour ago. So congratulations to that. So um, why don't we pray before I mess everything up, right? Lord God, uh, we just thank you for today. We thank you for bringing us here, for uh, giving us the opportunity to worship you. And Lord, we pray uh, for this time as I give this message. Lord, I pray that the words that you have prepared uh, through me, Lord, I pray that it can speak to all of us here, that it can impact our hearts, that we can be open to what the Spirit is doing and working. And so we thank you, God, in your name. Amen. Now, when I was in high school, one of the things that we would do every year for Christmas is that we would go and visit my grandparents in Nebraska. Now, for some context, my grandparents live in a very small rural farming town in the middle of nowhere, which I know is most of Nebraska, but still, that's where we would go and visit. And you may have heard the term before, a one-horse town. Well, this was a we like to call it a one plow town because in the entire town there was one heavy duty snow plow that you could use if there was ever like a big snowstorm. And what would typically happen is that whoever the person was to plow the snow would go, would go get the snow plow, drive it out, usually to their house out in the countryside on their farm. And then the next day or whenever the snow came, they would be able to just go ahead and plow the snow as they came into town as opposed to trying to have to drive through all that snow to get the plow to then drive back out. Kind of makes sense. But this year was different. 
See, over the course of 48 hours, over 15 inches of snow were dropped onto the, one of the flattest parts in Nebraska, where we were at. And there were over si- winds of over 60 miles per hour, complete, uh, creating complete whiteout conditions and making travel impossible. Pretty bad, but it gets worse. You see, that one plow, the only plow for the entire town in that snow, in that wind, got stuck out on that farm. So then the town that was only a one plow town soon became a no plow town during the worst snowstorm in town history. It was nearly a week until we were finally able to leave that town. And let me tell you, tensions started to get a little bit high during that week. You know, we, my brother and I, we ended up missing some school, wouldn't complain too much about that part, but I was a part of the wrestling team and I was missing practices, I was missing competitions and literally I could not leave to make it back. We had family members who did live out in the countryside. They did live on a farm, and they, even though they were only a couple miles away, could not drive into town to come and see us. We were stuck. And to top it all off, here we are in this town of only about 1,000 people, and we literally could not get in the car and go anywhere. There's my grandparents, there's my parents, and myself and my brother, and being cooped up in there, almost starting to feel like a zoo, things started to get a little bit irritable. There were times during those days where we wish we could just leave and get out, but we could not. And you know, I imagine that Noah probably felt that way at times too. We've been going through a series called Build a Boat, where we're looking through the life of Noah and where Noah built this boat to save his family and to save two of every single animal Uh, every kind of animal from a flood, from a worldwide flood. And the Bible tells us that the total number of days that Noah was on the ark were over a year. An entire year with you, your wife, your three kids, their three wives, and all these stinky animals. And when we tend to see images of what it looked like from on the ark, it tends to look like a picture like this with Noah smiling and all the animals happy and everyone's just getting along. And we know, though, inherently that this is just utterly ridiculous. You know, we don't have any Bible passage that completely outlines what life was like for Noah and his family were on the ark, but I gotta imagine it wasn't this here. It didn't look like something like this. You know, I can imagine some of the issues right now you know, family, or the, Noah and his family, they're sitting there, they're going over the chore wheel trying to figure out whose turn it was to go feed all the animals. And then Noah and his sons and his son's wives, I mean, there's got times where you've got different households mixing there. There's probably some conflict there over some independence. Don't tell me what to do, dad, kind of thing. And I could see as well that after a while, those animals on that boat for an entire year would start to not smell very well. I can imagine the discomfort and the desire to just get off that boat, get your feet onto some dry land and walk around, but they couldn't, they were stuck. 
You know, and maybe I'm reading a bit into this story, projecting a little bit of my own life into what's going on. But I can say with certainty that Noah's life on the boat did not look like this image. The Bible never presents any of the heroes, any of the characters in the story in being perfect. All of them are presented with their flaws. All of them are presented with their issues on full display for all to see. Abraham, the father of Israel, was also presented as someone who would lie if it meant he could save his own skin. The kings of Israel were all presented as, whether they followed God at times or not, but so many of them would chase after and seek idols rather than listen to God at times. And even the disciples of Jesus, his own followers, would at times question whether or not this God that they were following, this guy that they were following really was God, and if they were making the right choice or not. So when we talk about here with Noah and we talk about being on the boat, there's no way that it was just this perfect smiling image. There's gotta have been tension, there's gotta have been issues. Maybe it went really well, maybe it didn't, but it was for sure less than perfect. You know, have your family ever felt like a zoo like that? Have you ever felt trapped at times from members of your family? Do you ever feel like you get situations that you wish you could just escape from, but you just couldn't? Maybe at times your family feels like a zoo and it bothers you and you're like, man, I just wish I could get them to change somewhat. I wish there was a way that they could change and do something different. You know, maybe you've got that family member who knows how to push all of your buttons, gets under your skin, and you find yourself constantly arguing and fighting back. Maybe there's that family member who's got a really self-destructive behavior. And you wish you could, because you love them and care for them, you wish you could prevent them from doing the thing that they are doing, but they just keep doing it and you have to watch them make poor choice after poor choice. Maybe there's a tension in your family, some unresolved issue that's been going on and you would, like some, you would like it to be out there because you've realized that this tension has caused it to the point where you and your family, you don't even look forward to getting together anymore. Some of us might be feeling that with Thanksgiving coming up this week. And maybe there's some of you too, you look at your own spouse and you wish there were things that you could change or shape or mold about your spouse. You know, we love our families But when the monkeys are on the loose, when the pigs start to stink, and those stubborn donkeys just won't go anywhere, what do we do? And we try to change them. There's things that we do to try to change them, isn't there? We want them to be better, and so we think, okay, there's got to be some way I can control them or fix this situation so that things can work out the way that I think that they should work out, right? Maybe I can scare them. Maybe if I tell them what's going to happen because of their choices, I'll scare them into doing the right thing. Or maybe if I give them all the right facts and figures, they'll change their minds. They just need all the right information. That's what's going to fix the situation here. Or maybe there's even a way that I could even force them into doing 
what is right or what I think should happen. But why does it seem like no matter our best efforts, no matter how hard we work, no matter what we do, nothing seems to change with some of them. In fact, at times, they seem almost more entrenched by what happens. You know, there's a reason for that. Todd Bolsinger talks about what he calls the three Fs, the three ways that we think we can change people, but actually don't change people for these three Fs. And the first one that he outlines there is called fear. We cannot scare people into changing. Sure, when we think about the consequences, we might modify our behavior for a period of time, but that doesn't fundamentally change who we are or what is going on there. In his book, Todd Bolsinger talks about a study that was done. They found all of these people who, due to their poor health and lifestyle choices, were told essentially that they had one year left to live. And they followed their lives. They said, okay, we sat them down with doctors. The doctors told them the cold, hard truth. This is what's going to happen if you continue to live the same way that you were to live. But if you change it and you do this instead, your life will look very differently. And so they followed those people. And after one year of tracking all those people, they found after hearing the hold car truth, 95% of those people would go on to die. They'd given the harsh truth, they knew the consequences, they maybe even modified their behavior for a period of time, like someone doing a New Year's resolution, but it did not change them. Fear does not change people. The second one's a little bit more controversial. The second one that doesn't change people is facts. What do you mean facts don't change people? If I tell someone the right information, if they had all the data, then they would make the right choice. Uh-uh. Next year is a presidential election, isn't it? I know I'm really looking forward to all those TV commercials and mailings that I'm going to be receiving. Not but you're going to get all of that and you're going to see political debates and there's going to be people on, other si- on both sides of the political spectrum who have all the facts, who have all the figures. Have you ever genuinely seen one person switch from one side to the other because someone just had better facts than them? Probably not. It just doesn't happen. You see, even with the facts It just don't seem to change someone's mind. No matter how much information we present, facts don't change people. And the third one is force. Fear, facts, and force. The three Fs that don't change people. You cannot force someone to change. No matter how badly we wish to see somebody change, no matter how hard we work, even if we can, even if we feel like, oh man, if I just, if I grab them and shake them, maybe eventually they would change. It doesn't happen. We see this in every single addiction recovery program. Step one is always the person admitting that they have a problem and wanting to seek help themselves. It's never that somebody else dragged you to it. You cannot force them to change. 
in all of our families or in our relationships, if we try to use fear, if we try to use facts, if we try to use force, we will see the same things continue to happen over and over again and our wheels will be spinning and we will go absolutely nowhere. So how do we see people change? You know, Jesus had a pretty imperfect family that he wanted to see change. Now, he had his biological family, the family he was born into, but he also had the makeshift family of people that he traveled with while he was teaching and spreading his message. These people were pretty ragtag group. They were honestly very less than perfect. Within this group... He had people who were tax collectors who had gone and who had cheated and stolen people out of their money. And he had also people in the group who had made it their sworn mission to kill every single tax collector that they could get their hands on. He had people in the group who had expectations of what they wanted to see Jesus do. And when Jesus did not meet those expectations, he had to deal with their disappointments and their frustration. And even one of Jesus' disciples decided that he was going to betray Jesus to be killed. And so when you think about Jesus' family, Thanksgiving dinner doesn't sound so daunting this year. So while we may have had, just like the Noah's Ark picture, we may have nice pictures of Jesus gathered with all of his disciples that could go on a social media post or be sent out as a Christmas card. That just was not the case. Just like all of our social media posts and Christmas cards, below the surface, there are issues and problems because it is an imperfect family of imperfect humans, just like all of ours. So what did Jesus do with this family? Do you say, okay, I'm going to scare them into doing what I want, or I'm going to give them all the facts and figures, or I'm going to force them? No. There was a time in Jesus's life that we call the Last Supper. It was right before Jesus was about to be killed. He gathered all of his disciples together, and he said, I'm going to give you some last instruction. This is the things I need you to know before I die. And he goes, and after he's gathered them there for this last meal, the first thing, one of the first things he does is he gets down and he washes every single one of their feet. And then, then he also says that, One of you around the table, one of you whose feet I have just washed, which was very taboo. The teacher doesn't go around and wash people's feet. That's for a servant. That's for the lowest people in the society. But one of you that I just washed and shown all this great respect to, one of you is about to go betray me to be killed. After doing both those things, he says this in John 13. He says, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. What was Jesus' response to his imperfect family? He was going to love them. He was going to serve them them. Even knowing 
that he would be betrayed, even knowing that his closest friends would desert him in his darkest hour and would even deny even knowing that he existed, he said, I'm still going to love them and care for them. And when Jesus left, he knew that they would have their own issues. He'd have their their own problems with each other. When they're going to have their own doubts, they're all going to get on each other's nerves. They're all going to betray each other. But he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to show love for each other other. Love them as I have loved you. Do it in the same way. You see, over the course of all of Jesus's teachings, of all of their travels, of all the time that Jesus spent with them, Jesus was building a relationship with them. He brought them into a new environment where they could think about things differently. And then when they had the opportunity to experience and think about things differently, he continued to repeat the action, to have them observe, to see what he was doing, to build them up in order so that they had a model of what they were supposed to do. And it didn't happen just like that. It took years for it to get anywhere. He didn't try to control them. He didn't try to force them to change. He instead invited them, said, come follow me, watch what I do, then go do it. I know a better way. See, and that's the same option that we have there with our families and in our relationships because when we are dealing with the animals in our family, we need to love the animals in our family. So you've got two choices. You can try to control them or you can try to love them. We can argue with them and get into heated debates or we can serve them. We could look at them as projects that need to be fixed, or we can instead look at them the way that Jesus does, as people that he deeply loves. Now understand that this love does come with boundaries because love does not excuse or endorse wrongdoing. There are times where we need to set up good and safe boundaries between ourselves and others, even maybe from members of our own family. Jesus knew who was going to betray him, and he didn't just say, hey, that's a good job. You should go ahead and do that. I really like being tortured and killed. He said, no. He said, this is what's going to happen. This is wrong. He loved that person still regardless, and washed that person's feet. If you have an alcoholic family member, going out and buying them alcohol does not help them. It enables them and it hurts them. A boundary has to be set up there. And there may be other times where you need to be separated from certain members of your family or friends for your own safety or well-being. And there are other times where rather than rushing to the rescue of someone and trying to prevent them from making mistakes, we instead set up a boundary and be a soft place for them to land 
when their mistake has been made. But what does this love look like? What's some practical ways that we can encounter and see what this love looks like? How do we love rather than control? The first way, step one, you don't throw the poop back. Monkeys like to throw poop at you. But if you reach down and you throw the poop back at them, it's just your hands it's on now, both of yours. When you have that family member who is arguing with you, if you just argue back, it doesn't fix the situation. Now you're both just arguing. You know, I know at times in my own life when I have a family member who's engaging in a behavior that I don't agree with, if I retaliate against them, if I start acting in the same way that they do, I find myself, I'm becoming what I dislike rather than seeing them lifted up or improved. You can't throw the poop back at them. The second way is to wash their feet. And some of their feet might be really stinky. There's certain kinds of animals. I don't mean really wash their feet. I don't like it when people touch my feet. Um, but serve them in ways that they do not expect. Nobody expected Jesus to go and to wash the feet of the disciples. That wasn't something you would typically do. And when you have someone who's getting under your skin, when you have someone who might be mistreating you or doing things that you disagree with, serving them is extremely weird. You don't expect that because what we expect is retaliation. What we expect is for someone to throw the poop back. But when instead, when we try to serve somebody instead, we find that their whole demeanor changes. Because, whoa, let me take a step back here. Why, why would they do that? I'm acting this way. This is the way most people respond. Why would they do that? Is there, is there something different? Is there something that I'm missing? What's going on here? Don't throw the poop back. Wash their feet instead. The third one is to pray for them. And to pray for them, especially when you're angry or upset with them. This is hard. This is humbling. And not just a prayer when you're angry, be like, God, please smite this person down for me. Not that. But say, God, I pray for this person whom I care for, who I love, but, and I want the best for them. I want you to watch over their lives. I want you to care for them. I want you to take care of them. I can't control them. You're the God and I'm not. When we do that, it allows us to take a step back. It humbles ourselves and allows space for the Holy Spirit to work and to move in our lives. And it often softens our hearts to being open and making steps one and two of not throwing the poop back and washing their feet a lot easier once you've prayed for them. And step four is you gotta wait on the boat. This one might be the hardest because when we're waiting on the boat, we just have to keep waiting. There, I wish I could sit here and say I've got these four steps to show them love, and this is going to change people, and then tomorrow, it's going to fix that problem. It's going to fix that issue, but I, I, I don't have that. It's not there. 
Noah and his family and the animals had to wait an entire year on the boat. And for some of us, we may have been waiting a lot longer than a year to see some of this change. And it's hard. I'm not gonna mince words, it's hard. But we have, but if we're going to really love someone rather than control, we have to continue to love them, not throwing the poop back, washing their feet, praying for them, and waiting on the boat for them to change. So as we close, I want to give an example of what this might look like. What would it look like if you were to take these four steps to love the animals in your family, whether it's a relationship or a friendship or whatever, what would it look like to love people the way that Jesus has loved us? You know, when I was in college, there was a friend who, um, who I knew who was involved uh, in a lot of the same uh, Christian clubs that I was, but when she got out of college, her life dramatically changed. She started engaging in a lot of behavior and living a lifestyle that was very different from what she was before. And she had even told people that she was not sure she even believed in God anymore. And the behavior and things that she was doing and I looked at and I didn't agree with, a lot of other people I knew didn't agree with and we were thinking that this is leading this person to destruction. And what she expected, what she expected from the Christians in her life, what she had expected from the church family that she knew was rejection. She expected that once she did all these things, these people were going to cut her out of her life. They were never going to speak to her anymore. And that was going to be it. Because that is what she had encountered all of her life. Even though she had been part of the church her entire life, all she had seen was rejection and people being kicked to the curb. But that didn't happen. Instead of that rejection, she found that those Christians in her life were continuing to reach out to her, were checking on up with her, were helping her when things weren't going well. She instead found that they weren't acting the way that she thought that they were going to at all. Sure, there were some boundaries that were set up. She was serving in a way in her church that she couldn't serve in that same way anymore now that she had changed her lifestyle and beliefs. There was, so there was that boundary. But they weren't treating her any differently. They were treating her just as they always did. And that made no sense to her. Because for the first time in her life, she had encountered... God's unconditional love, the same love that he has for each and every one of us in a real and tangible way. She had been to her church, she'd been to a church her entire life, but she had never experienced it. Now I wish that I had an exciting end to this story. I wish that I could stand here and tell all of you that because of this, because of these Christians who continued to still love her, that she has changed her life around, that she has come back to God, and that she is living 
again in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God, in a way that is building her up and that is leading people to Christ, but I don't have that story for you. It's not there because we are still on the boat. We are still waiting and praying for that to happen. She still talks to the Christians in her life that she did before. She may even occasionally show up to this church because of the love that she had shown. But as far as I know, she still does not believe in God and she is still living a lifestyle and beliefs that are leading her to destruction, in my opinion. So we're on the boat. I'm on the boat and we're waiting and praying that though the person that we care for will change and praying that God will speak into her life. And as we wait, sometimes I wonder, rather than seeking to control others, rather than trying to force that kind of change to happen, that by demonstrating the love of Jesus, the same love and unconditional love that God has offered to each and every one of us, that we are the people who change while we wait. Would you please stand with me as we pray? Lord God, I just thank you that you do give us an unconditional love. That no matter how far we try to run from you, that no matter what happens, that you still continue to love and care for every single one of us. And Lord, I pray for those people in our lives, whether it's a cousin, an aunt, a spouse, a child, or a friend, a close friend or a distant friend, God, or someone who maybe was a friend and isn't. God, I pray for those people who may be wayward and that we are waiting for. And I, we acknowledge, God, that the waiting is hard. We acknowledge how hard it is to wait, Lord, because we wish they could change now. But nonetheless, Lord, I pray for the patience to endure and to wait. And I pray, Lord, that as we wait, I pray that we can go and we can share your love, the same love that you have offered to every single one of us. And I pray for anyone here, anyone who maybe has not encountered that unconditional love from you, Lord. I pray, God, that they can experience that in a real and tangible way and that their life can be changed because of it. Help us, Lord, to wait and to show that love, to love the animals in our families. In your mighty and powerful name, amen.